opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ plus community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. You're listening to a collaboration between Penny Forward and Pride Connection. This is the Penny Forward Podcast, a show about blind people building bright futures one penny at a time. I'm Liz Botner. And I'm Chris Peterson. We are blind people learning what it takes to be successful in our personal, professional, and financial lives. This is Pride Connection, sponsored by BlindLGBTPride.org, otherwise known as BPI, every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. on ACB Media One, and shortly after on all your major podcast catchers. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Pride Connection. I'm your host, Anthony Corona. And we have a very interesting show for you this evening. Pride Connection, Blind Pride International, has partnered up with one of our newest members who helms the podcast, Penny Forward. Links to his podcast page will be in the show notes. Uh, Please check it out. He does a great job. He's a great interviewer. And I'm very, very proud to say that Chris Peterson is one of our newest members. Tonight, he's going to be speaking with Lena Solazar. And she's going to be letting us into her life a little bit, talking about her reticence to start her own business and charge for her services, about her struggles accepting and, and merging into her life in the LGBTQ community, talking about losing her wife and and other areas. It's a great conversation, and we're really proud to be partnering with Penny Forward for this. Hopefully, we will collaborate in the near future. That's coming up in a few minutes. In the next couple of weeks on Pride Connection, you're going to hear a collaboration that I did, uh, a second part, with Bold Blind Beauty. And it is Fall Into the Senses, And we're going to be talking more in depth about sensuality, sexuality, vulnerability, consent, and, and, you know, the various ways that as blind and low vision folks, we have tweaked our senses to flirt, to read body language, to understand what's happening in social settings around us. So look forward to that conversation. Later on, we'll be bringing you highlights from our Denver Fall Social, courtesy of our members Byron and Chris, who you've heard on this podcast. We're really excited. Our Denver Fall Social is sort of a bookend, we're hoping, to the pandemic. Uh, Pre-pandemic, our last Fall Social was in Denver, and we had such a good time. Our members decided that it was apropos for us to go back on the other side and, you know, let's 
hope and pray that vaccination rates continue to go up and hospitalization rates continue to go down. Also, look forward to hearing about BPI's elections this coming November. Uh, At our business meeting this summer, we voted in some bylaw changes that will change our election cycle every other year. On odd years, the director seats will be up for election and on even years, the officer seats. So this year is a director's seat. There are four open seats. If you're interested in running, please contact past president Will Burley. You can find that information in the show notes as well. Anyways, we're really, really, really happy to announce that we are well over the 150 member mark. We are always looking for partners in outreach. So if you're listening and you are involved in a local LGBTQ organization or a local blindness organization that is friendly to the LGBTQ community, please contact membership at blindlgbtpride.org and we can present at at your local meetings or, you know, partner up and and give resources that Blind Pride has spent 20 years creating um, or or collating, I should say. Uh, We are definitely looking to expand our reach and to let more folks know that we're here and we're a family. Next up, and I know announcements can be boring and I apologize in advance (laughs) for anyone who wants to send those emails like, just get to the show, (laughs) I hear you. Um, But we want to ask our members If you remember over the last year and a half of podcasting, you've heard multiple Blind Pride International voices open and close the show. Well, recently, our parent organization, American Council of the Blind, morphed the radio into a media network. We're now offering podcasts and live streams as well as, you know, the radio streams. We have video, we have all kinds of good stuff going on, but unfortunately our show openings and outros are now outdated. So if you listen to the one tonight, that's my voice over Rainbow Connection sung by the incomparable Miss Barbara Streisand and Kermit the Frog, you can hear the new wording changing ACB Radio to ACB Media Network. Please take a couple moments, record a voice note of yourself Opening up the Pride Connection show, you can use tonight's opening and closing as a um, as an example, as a guideline, and tell us what version of Rainbow Connection you'd like your voice to go over, and you will be featured on an upcoming Pride Connection. So, with all that being said, I am going to turn it over to Chris Peterson and the Penny Forward Podcast for this amazing conversation and we will be back next week with another great show the penny forward podcast is telling stories about people like us who are working toward their own success and sharing tips to help manage our money better people often ask what is the most accessible way to do your taxes penny forward is a community of people who are blind their families and friends who share an interest in financial independence join us 
and we'll work together to avoid financial obstacles and target our goals. I love my work. It's the first time in a long time that I wake up in the morning and feel good about what I'm doing. The tiny home right now is gorgeous. Being the first blind student definitely ensured that I had very good self-advocacy skills, which have served me well. I ended up working on getting my credit score to a position where I was eligible for a first-time homebuyer loan. Our mission is to help blind people build the knowledge to confidently navigate the complicated landscape of personal finance through education, mentoring, and mutual support. Somebody will come along and recognize what you have to offer and what you can contribute. Listen to the Penny Forward podcast by searching for Penny Forward using your favorite podcast app, asking your smart speaker to play the podcast Penny Forward, checking out the Penny Forward YouTube channel, or visiting pennyforward.com. What is the hardest part of starting a business? For Lina and Solozar, it was the fear that it was wrong to charge for her services. We wanted to learn how Lina overcame that fear, so we invited her on to tell us how surviving a sexual assault and coming to terms with her sexual identity helped her to discover talents that she is now using to help others while simultaneously helping herself. Hi, Lina. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So right now I'm in Boston and I am both a braille proofreader and a business owner. I do energy healing work as well as tarot card readings. Would you mind telling us a little bit how you were raised and and how that informed your views on healing and and sexual identity and mental health and that kind of thing? Sure. I was raised in a Mormon household, very conservative. And as a kid, it influenced sexual identity and that straight was kind of the only option. If I had feelings for a female, it was kind of like, oh no, that's just a really good friend. And it would just kind of be pushed off to the side. But I was kind of raised in a place where there was a lot of stigmas, so definitely one around mental health as well. There was a lot of get over it when things would happen. There was a lot of get over it. You shouldn't need medication. You shouldn't really need therapy. And if you do, I'm concerned about your well-being kind of thing. But it kind of permeated everything. Like when I was growing up, Healing was something that well, was often talked about, but mainly in the context of blindness. Like my family would, I actually think they still do, some of them, pray every day that I'll get sight and have this hope that I'll have eye transplants and like just all these different things that influenced my initial beliefs as to what healing was. Although it's kind of interesting because my mom even took me to see an intuitive healer when I was a kid because she was determined to find some way to give me sight. And I was fascinated by this person, the way that she would talk to me, the way that she apparently talked to people differently based on her intuition of how people were. And she said that I would be good at it even then. I was a teenager, I think. And... I was fascinated and that 
I don't think I realized, well, no, I didn't realize it at the time, but it kind of opened the door. So I guess how I was raised influenced a lot of my life, as, as I'm sure it does for a lot of people. It, it shaped my childhood years until I was old enough to really take a good look at it and see what the situation actually was with my life and who I'm attracted to, how I heal, how I heal other people, my own mental health, everything. A lot of it shifted as an adult, but it definitely was informed very strongly by my Mormon upbringing. How have your past experiences, be that relationship-wise, sexual assault-wise, and possibly your experiences or interactions with you know, mental health and, as you were saying, your family's thoughts on it, how have they shaped your later years? Oh, yeah, they definitely have. So for starters, when I was 19, I was sexually assaulted at a school, a a training center, an FB center. And that shaped a lot of, I believe it shaped the kinds of relationships that I got into. I mean, I was with men for a long time because again, that was the only option until I finally realized that what I was feeling was more than attraction. And once I stopped dating men, which pretty much all of those relationships were toxic, all caps. (laughs) And I started to date women and kind of was like, wow, this is where I'm meant to be. These were more than just feelings all along. I'm, I'm lesbian and it changed everything and being able to let go of the family stuff changed everything. Letting it be not only an option, but realizing that it was who I was. So not really an option at all, as far as happiness goes, it was that And learning from the past relationships about gaslighting, about what love is and isn't, what I want and don't. So, yeah, it affected my relationships and definitely that that sexual assault situation affected the kind of people that I dated and It also opened up, though, on a more positive note, it opened up a sense of intuition because when I first dealt with that, when I first met the person who ended up doing it, I knew that he had bad intentions. And I didn't listen to that sense of intuition because it was sudden and strong and it was something new for me. So... After that happened and after the assault, I realized that I had that that intuition, that sense of, I can tell someone's intentions. And now it's just a matter of listening to it. And over the years, it has kind of become a goal where I've been developing my intuition more and more until it has blossomed into everything that I'm working on now and become a part of my life that I do 
listen to, trust, and follow as much as I can. I think that there are some people that grow up knowing from a very early age that they're different, that they're gay or bisexual, or that they maybe have a different gender identity. And then there are many of us who have no idea or come to that realization later in life. Which one of those camps do you fall into, do you think? And can you go into some more detail about how that evolved for you? Well, I will say for certain that I fall into the camp of knowing later in life. And again, I'd say probably 95% of that is just that it wasn't a consideration. Like I had relatives that would campaign against gay marriage where I grew up in California. And the church I went to was the church that funded the campaign commercials against gay marriage in California. So I was in a situation where I knew that if you weren't straight, you didn't belong. Now, so I didn't even let myself explore if something was a feeling that I would feel for a woman friend. And it really didn't start to let up on that front until I went to college. And it was actually later in college, I was attending Sacramento State and some of the people that I knew identified as queer and they were watching me when I did have an attraction to a woman and it was a fairly strong one and they kind of asked me about it and when I answered the questions it was pretty obvious that there were feelings there and I was about 28 (laughs) so it's kind of yeah, it, it feels very late, you know, given that I'm 33 now, that feels, that just feels late. And when I finally realized this, I, I kept, you know, oh, I'm, I'm pansexual or at minimum bisexual because I like men too. And there was this whole idea when I was dating even after that of, okay, so I'm dating a guy. So I don't necessarily have to be out because when I tried to come out, People would tell me that they thought it was a phase or why don't you just commit to the person you're with instead of worrying about the rest of it. So I took a pass for three years is what I call it. Um, It's basically I was dating a guy. So let everybody assume that I was straight, even though I told some people that I wasn't. And after breaking up, with him, I had a couple of long distance relationships with women that really didn't work. And then there was Tion and she and I had everything in common, kind of met in like this sleepless in Seattle kind of way where I heard her singing, stood outside the lounge and listened. And she looked at me and was like, are you coming in? And you going to talk to me or are you just going to stand there? And it was just kind of faded. We had a lot of similar interests. We talked about history, mythology. We sang just 
everything in common. And I ended up, you know, we ended up getting married. And at that point, being in the closet to me was no longer an option. This was, well, we got married this year, but we were together last year, September, 2020, because of being with her and wanting to celebrate that, I was fully out to my family at this point. Everyone else kind of knew by that point because of the people that I was dating, but that was when I finally came out to my family and it was kind of like, well, that's great. It's your life. Like, I don't know, the idea of being supportive, but not wanting to talk about it. And that's still kind of where, where we are. Um, I'm unfortunately she passed, which will go, um, it's an important part of my story, but not necessarily of my, um, lesbian realization evolution, uh, piece except you know it was with her that that I really started to kind of come out and be like no it's I'm not bi I'm not I'm lesbian I am attracted to women and that's me and that's great and I'm proud of who I am in going through that journey that you just so very well described thank you for that what could you say if there was maybe one thing that was the most helpful for you that kind of helped you figure things out, right? Because there might be people who are listening who can relate to your story and maybe have, are questioning things of themselves. And so I'm just, you know, how, what did you find the most helpful along your journey? So for me, the first thing that happened was, you know, like I said, when I had feelings for someone, my LGBTQ community found me going, yeah, you're having feelings for this person. That's what this is. And that's okay. And being able to talk to those people, to find people who've been there, right? Like to find a safe space, to find mentors. And almost immediately what I did was at college, they had a queer leadership program. And my friend recommended and said, you would be great for this. And you could learn a lot from this. And I joined it. Best thing I ever did. It was a semester of, you know, learning about identities from people who identified as those things. And we had a you know, it was a student group, but then we had a staff panel, which I had the honor to moderate, actually, where staff members talked about things like coming out or not coming out or how they identified and whether they identified as such early on or later in life, kind of like, kind of like this. So just like listening to people's stories and being able to talk to them and ask questions was probably the most helpful thing for me that I found. I wonder if you could expand a little bit more on how you started to recognize your attractions to women and, and what that looked like, because there must have been a lot more to it than just uh, I realized I was attracted to women and then I got married to one. 
<laughs> Fair enough. It was hard because the first person that I was really attracted to and actually kind of cuddled with and like decided to do that, just I couldn't really talk to about it because she was in another relationship. So it was a matter of like, this is how I feel about this person. People telling me like, yeah, that's, it sounds like what, what you would say if you had feelings for a guy, just like, well, it's not really the same. It's stronger. But even, even after doing things like going to queer leadership, I put that on the back burner because I ended up dating a guy. And like I said, just, I was like, oh, and I'm taking the pass. And then it kind of this other you know this this woman that I dated long distance and it was kind of one of those things where it was like I feel awkward talking to you because I care about you and I want to know that we're on the same page because I felt this just powerful sense of wanting to be around this person and the concept of you know butterflies a lot of the, the kind of cliche I guess some of that sense of love that I realized that I had only felt slightly when I was dating men and that faded quickly and kind of realizing over time that it wasn't fading, that it was actually growing stronger and that it was a very different feeling for me of, no, this is what I've always thought falling in love was getting close to someone, being able to trust them. Having that desire to be with them on the deepest levels. And I guess a lot of it came from my realizing too that I wasn't attracted to men more than it was I realized I was attracted to women, I guess. Because I looked at things like, why did my relationships go wrong? And a big part of it was my disinterest. Uh, if I can be totally open here, my disinterest in sexual activities with men was another tip off. And thinking that I wasn't normal because I just didn't want that and it wasn't fun. And everyone talked about how great it was. And I just kind of was, meh, it's okay, I guess. So, you know, that was, that was definitely another tip off, kind of a sign I missed until, <laughs> until I experienced it with Tion and it was like, oh, that's the difference. <laughs> I feel like that's a lot, but it's sort of, sort of complicated, I guess. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of pieces to it. Along your journey and figuring out for yourself, you know, that as you say, you were more attracted to women and less to men and having that be perfectly okay. Were there any situations or spaces that you found in coming to that realization that weren't helpful for you? Well, I think the biggest... That makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense because, you know, there's all kinds of spaces where figuring out your queer is not helpful. Um <laughs> you know, I, my family was honestly probably one of the biggest because it was something you didn't talk about. It's still something you don't talk about. You know, like I have a relative when I went to visit California this year, even, and I've, you know, I've been out for a year or so now, uh, like completely. So 
But I went to California in June and got my hair cut. And one of my relatives said, oh, you're going to be attracting all the boys now. And it was like, no, I'm not because I'm not interested in that. And I mean, it's sort of the same people that kind of go, well, you're lesbian because your friends are lesbian and they got married and you want that. And so I think that's the, the biggest, the most unsafe space, the, the least helpful space. But I had to leave the church I was part of too because they put being gay up there next to adultery and fornication, you know, considered them all equal as far as sinning goes. So I definitely felt like there was no way to be me there. And as far as when I was exploring, I did a lot of it on my own. Although, even though I was out to the guy I was dating at the time, uh, when I first kind of realized, he kind of did the same thing I did and ignored it, but also wouldn't say disparaging things about me, but about gay people, about trans people sometimes. Like, so there definitely were places, mostly unfortunately with the people I was closest to when I was trying to find myself and find the answers to all those questions about my identity that I hadn't understood yet. Let's tackle the opposite of that question. What were some of the safest or the the best spaces that you found while you were coming out that were the most helpful? So first and foremost was the queer leadership program at Sacramento State. That was huge. They were there to, to help us. It was where I learned about pronouns. It was where I understood what a lot of the, the identities that people have are because there was a lot I just didn't understand because, you know, it was basically straight or gay. And that's all I really knew up until that point. I think other safe spaces, that was, that was the biggest, but I think other safe spaces really were Facebook groups. And my circle of friends that I, well, I went to school with and some that I didn't, uh, that, that lived in my apartment complex. My spiritual community used to be a safe space, the one I was most recently a part of. It's not anymore. And then I have what I call my sisters, and they're what I call what I refer to as chosen family as opposed to bio family. And there's a group of, well, including my fiance, there's a group of five of us that are very close and we hang out and it's safe to express things. Like I already know more of who I am now, but it's still, it's, it's safe to talk and get advice and help with the people that I care about who aren't a safe space, who don't, who don't see who I am as something that is 
me and they see it as a phase or a product of other people. So definitely being with my sisters is a source of safe space, a source of comfort and companionship and understanding. Switching gears slightly, I guess, a little bit here. And you talked about this a little bit before, but how did you discover energy healing? So I did talk about the intuitive healer when I was a kid. That was kind of the tip of the iceberg. When I really started to discover things was 2009. I was sitting around a fire with a group at a personal development seminar. And one of the members of the group had a quartz crystal wand. So basically it's a quartz crystal, but it's shaped kind of like a wand. And you use it to direct energy with. He passed it around the circle and one of the members of the circle pointed it at me. And, you know, it was unintentional because, you know, she'd never used it before and it was totally understandable, but I felt the energy coming from it. And I said something and the man I was, who owned the, Crystal said something and then suggested that I do pranic healing. Well, I attempted to do pranic healing and quickly found that pranic healing teachers didn't want to teach me because I was blind and they didn't know how. So I went in search of other modes and found Reiki, which is a Japanese style of energy healing that was brought to the States. And in 2011, I learned how to do that and became a master. I I got my master certification so that I could practice and teach. And I've been doing Reiki for 10 years, but not as a business, more of as something that I could offer people just, you know, oh, you have a headache? Oh, let me help you. And I guess that's how I really discovered it. And then other methods, I discovered tapping last year because I was attempting to support a friend's business because the pandemic just made things difficult. And she was offering tapping to people. And I was just like, oh, let me try this because I have a lot that needs healing. (laughs) Um, And it was a lot. I had a lot of breakthroughs and I realized that I wanted to give that back to people too. So I also learned how to do that. I think we'll get into what some of those things are in more detail a little later, but can you relate some of that back to some of the things you've talked about already? How did that help with you personally? Well, tapping especially really helped specifically with the sexual assault trauma. It also was something I did to bring down some of the fears related to coming out to my family. It's just to give kind of a basic, it's acupuncture without needles is what I say. You can get into a more detailed thing later, but it's basically is used to make things less intense and is definitely very healing. And, and as far as Reiki goes, it was just a, it's always been a method to bring peace and tranquility to me and other people. And 
because I can definitely use it to heal myself and just kind of give myself a sense of groundedness, calm, peace. And it just has been a very important piece kind of as a, it's been kind of a thing to remind me that I do have abilities and strengths that are there that I can channel into. It's it's kind of a, a reminder, like, yeah, you're a Reiki master. You can channel into this source energy and use it. And, you know, and you're good at it. And it's evidence of something you can do for people and yourself. And it helps you. It helped me to feel like it was an extra self-esteem boost, I guess. Feel like I was, I had something worth giving to people. How did you decide after doing energy healing for about 10 years, I believe is what you said, how Mm -hmm. did you decide or what was maybe the one thing that made you decide to turn your passion for energy healing into an actual business? So this is where uh, Tian's death comes into play because when, when I started doing tapping last year, I wanted to do it as a business, but I still had difficulty because I felt like healing should be free, even though I paid quite a bit for healing sessions. I felt like I should not be charging for it because it was somehow wrong or like spiritually immoral. And this year, um, Tion passed away very suddenly. And it was the absolute lowest point of my life, followed immediately by my spiritual community deciding that because I was too angry and grieving that I shouldn't be around them either. So I went through what some refer to as the dark night of the soul, where I didn't feel much of anything. I was sort of kind of wavering between life and death. I I know that can seem extreme, but I lost the person that I would have, that I believed, you know, was the, the love of my life that I was going to be with for a long time. I mean, we're 33 and 35. I realized that it wasn't guaranteed, but it definitely felt like we had a long time to grow together. And so all of it at the same time just crushed me for a while and I felt like my soul was shattered. And then I realized that something in me as well as Vima, who is at the time a, a dear friend and constant supporter and who basically ended up staying with me and taking care of me and trying to keep me on the side of life. So between her and something in me, something clicked and I decided that somehow I wanted to live and that I wanted to help other people that were going through hard times and that needed healing. So I, at the time, kind of got obsessed with the idea of 
the phoenix rising from the ashes and decided that that was me and that I needed to rise again to come back. And that one way to help myself do that was to help other people heal too. And it kind of came down to, well, I wanna do this full time. I want to be a healer. I, I like proofreading braille. I like reading books. I, well, I love reading books, <laughs> but I want to heal full time. I want to be someone that's helping people. And in order to do that, I have to get around this spiritually immoral thing about healing. And it's something that I will want to turn into something where I can support myself. When I started to go down that path, it's kind of like, I wouldn't say a runaway train because I still feel like I have control, but it, the train definitely sped up and it was just something told me, yes, you're on the right path. You know what you're doing now go. And I started getting mentors and I started getting, getting help. And it's just kind of, you know, it's only been a few weeks, but it's taken off like a rocket. And I just feel like the grief and the wanting to, the deciding that I wanted to live after Tion passed really is what brought me into this path of starting a business and that this business represents me accepting my gifts, who I am, and loving and honoring that aspect of myself. Once you made the decision to start your business, what was one of the most exciting things that happened as a result of that? Or, or what was one of the most exciting things about that? This for one, <laughs> um, being, being here doing this, um, this interview <laughs> was like, was kind of huge. One of the coolest things about it was when I decided to start this, all the the mentors and the great teachers that I've been wanting to find and wanting to work with came out of the woodwork and were like, yeah, we'll work with you. We'll help you. And equally exciting is the, the way that clients react to what I'm doing. The sense of healing, feeling lighter, the laughter we share on the phone, the peace at the end of sessions, just I think that's so, that's very exciting that it's bringing about so much happiness and peace and healing in starting your business and getting things off the ground. What were some things that maybe were scary for you in in doing that? Conversely to the question about exciting things. So the scariest thing I got to say <laughs> is just this feeling that I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, because I've always had a nine to five, always had a nine to five since I was 20 years old. It's always been some kind of full-time eight hour job. Um, and most of it's been in the blindness field, proofreader, braille teacher, receptionist, but even that a lot of times was at a blindness center, assistive technology instructor certification type stuff. 
a lot of my work has been in the blindness field. So the, it's been the idea of, of A, starting my own business, getting to kind of make the decisions, figuring out who I want to work with, asking for help. That's all been quite nerve wracking. The fact that I'm finding that people are struggling with the idea of tarot cards and energy healing uh, in certain circles. I'm I'm sad, but there's a little fear there because of how people might react to me. And I think, like I said, just knowing who to who to trust, who to work with as far as doing things like building a website or doing the bookkeeping or helping with, you know, getting all the the licenses together, like just knowing who the best people are based on, you know, interviews and intuition when I've never started a business has been kind of nerve wracking, but exciting too. So what are your plans for getting your business off the ground now that you've made the decision? Well, first of all, I found a bookkeeper that I intend to work with. So she's also going to help me get the license going. I intend to move to Texas to be closer to my sisters. And as of February 28th, to get this really going off full time. Because that is my dream to be healing full time. And I'm working with a web designer and right now most of my promoting has been through you know just Facebook posts and messages and word of mouth which has been awesome because I'm still you know I'm still growing which is exciting so and I and I still have a lot of places I can go You've touched on this a little previously, but what exactly is energy healing and how does it work? Okay. So what I do two different types of healing. So I'm going to kind of, if that's okay, go into each one. The first one I learned is Reiki, and that's a Japanese style of energy healing where energy is channeled through the hands of the practitioner. And this can be done virtually or long distance. But I use a combination. I use Usui and Holy Fire Reiki, which they're different energies, but I feel like Holy Fire I use more. And it's it's more of a concentrated, like the energy that is sent from my hands goes to the specific location. And it's also, it does a lot of the, the energy is actually guiding my hands more than more than I am. With the other form, the Sui Reiki, which is is part of it, like you learn both at the same time, although I already had the the knowledge of that um, 10 years ago. But to me, it feels like it more bathes the client in energy and just comes out in different, like as more of a wave. It still can be focused, but it tends to kind of spread more is how I experience it. So the other form that I use is emotional freedom techniques, which is also known as tapping. And I've described it earlier as acupuncture without needles, but what it is, you tap on meridian points, which are points in the body that have 
sensitivity and they're very um, specific and it relates some to Chinese medicine, acupuncture, acupressure. But when you do this, it helps to calm the brain. And what you do is you tap on these points and the practitioner guides you through phrases. So if it's something like, I don't know, a craving for chocolate, I might start off with something like, even though I have this craving for chocolate, I deeply and completely love and accept myself while tapping the side of the hand. And it starts to kind of set up the idea that this is what we're working on. And then we move around to different points and talk about and use phrases relating to this craving so that it calms the brain and you don't feel that craving nearly as intensely anymore. So those are the two types of, of healing that I use. Where do you do this? I, I think you said that this can be done remotely. Can it also be done in person? Does it matter? It doesn't matter. I've done Reiki in person several times. I did tapping once because I learned during the pandemic. So I've only done tapping in person once. But Reiki can be sent over distance. That's one of the things you learn in one of the Reiki levels is to send it in person. And I actually learned online because they actually have a system for that now. My second classes, my initial classes were in person. My second classes for the Holy Fire were online. And tapping, yeah, tapping can be done either way because the practitioner is guiding the client to tap on the points. So that can be done either on the phone or in person. Who are your clients and where have you or where do you find them? So, so far, my clients have been friends, not really. Some of them have been close friends that I know, but a lot of them have been like friends on Facebook who've commented on my posts. And then from there, some of them will refer other people. So at this point, my clients are people who need healing from just about anything like physical pain, cravings, trauma, you know, and then I also have clients who are interested in the idea of, of tarot readings. That's, that's kind of a different situation. That's more of a, I'm curious about my future or perspective on a present situation. And I want to know more about that. But again, I'm right now finding clients the same way through my own Facebook posts and through word of mouth. What advice do you have for people who feel like they can relate to some part of the story that you've told? Well, I think as far as starting a business, I would say just, I know it sounds totally cliche in my head, but just do it. <laughs> don't, don't think you need all this special knowledge. Like knowledge is helpful. Knowledge is power. Absolutely. I believe that 100%. And that also applies to the knowledge of who knows how to do this already and can help me without me reinventing the wheel. So that's, that's one piece for sure. You know, if there's aspects like if you can relate to the trauma situation, if it helps you to find a therapist, do that. If it doesn't, then 
you, there's always places like rain or hotlines or or healers if that helps you i i definitely work with that considering that was my first foray into things like tapping was my own trauma and as far as like i as i think i've said before as far as things like coming out find people that that you know who are out that can help you find i think honestly the best advice I can give for all of this, now that I think about it, seems to be finding a mentor, finding support, leaning on people who can help you through and asking them and letting them support and be on the journey with you. I think the best piece of advice is don't go it alone. Is there anything else that we should know about you or your story that you would like to share that we have not asked? I think you've asked everything. I think what I will kind of say is that what I want people to know is that what I do is positive. What I do helps people. It's it's very special to me and it's neither religious nor anti-religion. If people would like to contact you either to talk about their own experiences with you or or to become a client, where can they find you? My Facebook is Lena Ann Solusar. So that's L-E-E-N-A and then Ann, A-N-N-E, Solusar, S-O-L-U-S-A-R. And my email is Lena, also L-E-E-N-A dot S-A-L-I-M at gmail.com. Either of those places is a great way to get in touch with me. I check both very regularly. Thank you, Lena, for sharing your passion, your story, and yourself with us. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. The Penny Forward podcast is produced by Liz Botner and Chris Peterson. Audio editing and post-production is provided by Byron Lee, and transcription is provided by Anne Verdine. Music was composed and performed by Andre Louis, and web hosting is provided by Taylor's Accessibility Services. Penny Forward is a community of blind people building bright futures one penny at a time. Visit pennyforward.com about to learn more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, for all of us in the Penny Forward community, I'm Chris Peterson. And I'm Liz Botner. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Well, thank you very much to Chris Peterson and Liz Botner from the Penny Forward podcast. And a very special thank you goes out to Lena Ann Salazar for telling us her story. Chris is here to tell us about why he started the Penny Forward podcast. This is Chris Peterson, founder and president and CEO of Penny Forward Incorporated. I started Penny Forward because I don't want to see blind people living in poverty anymore. And even more so, I don't want to see blind people find jobs, find their way out of poverty, only to find their way back into it later in life. And this is an all too common scenario. Blind people need the education to make good financial decisions, no matter what life stage they are in. But this starts right at the beginning of a person's adult life. We need to provide good quality, accessible, affordable financial education to teenagers, young adults, and adults so that they can make the best decisions for themselves and they don't have to experience 
the kind of conditions that you and I have experienced throughout our lives. This is a big job, and we've started a nonprofit organization incorporated in the state of Minnesota to accomplish it. We are currently in the process of recruiting a solid board of directors that can carry out Penny Forward's mission, and we are currently accepting donations to help us get started. To learn more, please visit pennyforward.com about. And if this mission resonates with you, please click on the tip jar link and set up a recurring donation to help us to make Penny Forward's mission a reality. Well, with that, we're going to bid you all a good evening. Thank you for listening to this very special collaboration between Penny Forward and BPI. If you've enjoyed listening to Pride Connection, be sure to visit our website at blindlgbtpride.org. And if you're interested in becoming a member of Blind Pride International, you can send us an email. Our email address is membership at blindlgbtpride.org. You've been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind Pride International, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. Please check us out at blindlgbtpride.org. So-